Well, good morning again, everybody. I'm going to try to use an illustration this morning to get ourselves started. It's a football illustration, and I realize that not everybody in the room is a football fan. In fact, uh, at the former church, we have a church plant in North Tonawanda, and one time one of the guys, his name is, uh, his last name is Cook, and so he was coming up and he was telling me, Ryan Cook, that's his first name, uh, but he was telling me, he said, you know, I, I don't always follow along with your analogies. You know, I'm not always a big sports fan the way maybe some of the rest of the congregation is. I'm just not into ball sports, he said. And I was like, there's other, what? Like... <laughs> Think about it in your mind. Go through it in your mind, like how many sports there are that don't require a ball of some sort. And, and his sport that he's interested in is uh, cross-country Nordic skiing racing. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I don't have a lot of sermon illustrations that go that. So this morning I'm going to use a football illustration to kind of get us started. And so I went through the church this morning to get a football to demonstrate this. And this piece of junk is the best that I could do for a football. So if I squeeze it, the whole side of it is coming out, and the, and, uh, but it is the Grip Right 500, so, uh, so that's going for us. So to use a football analogy to get us started, uh, Sunday, November 18, 2007, the Baltimore Ravens ran off the field high-fiving each other because they had just won a game where they had come back from behind. Uh, they were playing against the Cleveland uh, Browns, and uh, little did they know that they would end up losing the game in overtime, 33-30. Uh, to 30. What ended up happening is Phil Dawson, and Phil Dawson is a kicker, uh, he kicked a field goal to finish the game that went through the uprights, sort of. I don't know if you remember this thing. What ended up happening is it hit the side of the upright. Let me see if I can do this for you. If I'm looking, it hit the side of the upright, ricocheted in, and then hit the little thing where maybe the camera is there in the back, and then shot back out into the playing field. And the two referees that were standing under it, looking like this, looked at each other. And then one of them starts going like this, and the other one just started doing the same thing, right? And so uh, what ends up happening is the players take the field, game's over, and they head to the exits, and 25 minutes later, they decide, you know what? Actually, when it hit that upright and it bounced and it went through, it had to have gone through the uprights in order for the game. Uh, so it is a game-tying field goal is what happened there. So now they have to get the players out of the locker room. They've taken off their pads. They've taken off their helmets. They've high-fived each other. I mean, there's guys in an ice bath. Like, this is literally what happened. And they have to come back out to the field and start overtime. The Cleveland Browns get the ball to start overtime. And they drive down the field. And they end up winning the game. Uh, this all happened with only 26 minutes left in regulation. During regulation, uh, they had scored, the Ravens had scored, they had driven down the field and scored, and they had gone ahead by three points, and there's only 26 minutes left, and there was this star quarterback that brought the Browns back and tied up the game. His name was Derek Anderson. Ah, yes. Some of you who are ball sport fans know what I'm talking about uh, this morning. Derek Anderson is our new quarterback, and he is going to save... Buffaloes. <laughs> but. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6. We're in a sermon series on Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6. Going into chapter 7 today. Sermon series on Nehemiah. 
And there's a lot of parallels here. If you'll, if you'll open your Bibles there, if you're looking in uh, the, the Bibles in front of you in the pews, we're around page 509, 510, that area right there. I'm the New International Version. We're in a sermon series called Awakening. And, and this guy, Nehemiah, we're following his story as God has called him to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And as we come to the tail end of chapter 6, Nehemiah has done the impossible. The last two minutes of the game, he has tied the game up. He has actually gone ahead to win the game. Look at verse 15, chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Folks, this is an incredible feat. In 52 days, the walls which had been in ruins for generations were now rebuilt. In 52 days, he had rebuilt them. Verse 16, when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. And Nehemiah and his team ran off the field into the locker room and jumped into the ice bath because they had won the game. Look at verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah. Remember that guy? He keeps showing up. And replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was the son-in-law to Shechaniah, the uh, son of Era, and his son Jehonanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah. Uh, that was wrong. Verse 19. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and telling him what I had said. And Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. Take your pencils, take your pens, highlighter, whatever you're using this morning. Will you highlight in verse 17? Also in those days, underline this, the nobles of Judah were sending letters to Tobiah. Why on earth were the nobles of Judah sending letters to Tobiah, the enemy? In the middle of all the work that they had done, all that they had accomplished, they are sending letters to the other team, to the enemy. They're communicating back and forth with the enemy. And what is the response? Verse 19, moreover, underline this, they kept reporting to me his good deeds. In the middle of all that's going on, Tobiah has been a pain in the side to Nehemiah. And every time he turns around, he's dealing with Tobiah and all that Tobiah is doing. And now the people that have helped him build the wall are telling him how great Tobiah is. He's got to be asking himself this question. If you're following along this morning uh, in your bulletin, there's a white sheet of paper to help you see where I'm going there this morning. What am I accomplishing that really matters? Look at all the work that Nehemiah had done. What it had taken to galvanize these people that didn't want to work together, who had motivated them to do what they had never been able to do before. And in 52 days, they had accomplished rebuilding the wall. And now they are just going right back to it with Tobiah. What am I accomplishing that really matters? I'm going to ask you this morning to interact with me a little bit. I'm going to ask for a little crowd participation, so I want you to speak back to me, and then I'm going to ask you to stop crowd participating, okay? Because <laughs> so I've got a few things I want to say this morning. I'm worried that you're going to overtake uh, what I'm about to say. So what are the things that the world tells us matter? What are the things that the world tells us matter? Go ahead. Money. Yes. What else? Power. I need a new car, I heard. Fame. Education. Likes on social media. Yes. Swipe left, swipe right. Yeah, that type of thing. Yeah, you're tracking with me. 
maybe a house with a picket fence, right? The whole American dream idea. These are the things that matter. A large retirement fund. What else? A cell phone. That ma- yeah. What was that? A pursuit of happiness. Whatever that means. Because that's different for each of us. Go ahead. Safety? Yep. Safety? A job title. Yes. Prestige. Position. Status. The desk in the corner office. Yes. It's all about me. All right. Thank you for your input. Now stop inputting. Infomercials are built around the idea that you have the flexibility to do whatever you want and no one can tell you otherwise, right? I don't, I don't care whether they're selling you a paintbrush, a vacuum cleaner, or, you know, the sous chef griller grinder all in one, whatever it is. This whole idea that you could just come in and five minutes you've got dinner is, is ready for you, or in five minutes that whole wall will be painted, or in two minutes, you know, just whatever it is. You'll have the flexibility to do whatever you want. We studied uh, two summers ago, the book of Ecclesiastes, and we find the most wise man ever to walk on the planet, the wealthiest man ever to live, Solomon, says this, it's all what? Meaningless. It's all meaningless. Everything is meaningless under the sun. So ask this question, how can I spend my life then doing something that is worthwhile? If it's all meaningless, the things that I'm chasing and pursuing, if it's all a waste of my time, how do I do something that's worthwhile? Second question, how can I live so that my life counts for God? How can you look at the scoreboard and actually believe that you're getting an accurate representation of what matters here on this earth? That's our question for this morning. So as we go through, I want to answer that question in a few ways. Here's your first fill-in, and it's coming from Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. Worship matters to God. Worship matters. This is what counts. Worship matters to God. Verse 1, after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. Nehemiah mentions here that after the walls were rebuilt, the doors were installed. He, he appointed these gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites. Most commentators would say these were the worship leaders for the community. And they were put there in place, uh, but they were also there to, to actually defend the walls as well, to defend those gates. And I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if they held choir practice while, uh, while they're watching the thing or they're keeping themselves awake at night by singing songs. I, I'm not exactly sure what that looked like, but we know that there was a preference put forward. First preference was going to be that worship was going to be important. And it's not just here in Nehemiah. We see it all the way through scriptures and we see it in the book of Revelation that that will one day be the priority of every believer in this room and every believer who's ever lived on this planet is that worship of a holy God, exalting God Almighty, will be our first and always priority. Revelation says this, the saints will gather with the angels and the four living creatures and 24 elders and they will sing this, worthy is the lamb that was slain and to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. We'll each be caught up in the beauty of the moment. We'll be lost in wonder and love and in praise. As I was studying this week, one of the sermons I was reading through used as a slide the picture of a far side cartoon with a guy sitting on a cloud with a harp 
and, and he's, he's just sitting there in a cloud with a harp because this is what people have an idea of what maybe eternity looks like. And he says, the caption on the side says, I wish I brought a magazine. He's bored to death. And if that's your mindset, and it is many people's mindset of what eternity with the Holy God looks like, it's a vast misconception of what we see in Scripture. When you come to a scene of natural beauty, when you see something like the Grand Canyon, or if you've ever been, and I have not, to the Alps, or something that was just this beautiful, wonderful creation that God has made, when we, we hear from those who've gone into space and looked back on the earth, and every one of them talks about how their breath was taken away of just the sheer beauty of what God has created, the awesome beauty. It creates spontaneous praise in each and every one of us, and that will be shared with others. You understand that heaven will be a time of drinking in this infinite beauty, but we'll be doing so together. We'll, we want to tell somebody about it. He said, do, do you see what I just saw? Are you experiencing what I'm experiencing right now? All glory and honor and praise, let's give it to the Lord in heaven. What counts? What matters? What gives us an accurate scorecard? Worship matters to God. Secondly, verse 2, character matters to God. Character matters to God. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother, Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. And I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. When the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some of at their posts and some near their own houses. If you like reading leadership materials, leadership books, Nehemiah is really an incredible leader. He knew that if he was going to be effective, he was going to have to delegate the responsibility and give them the authority to do the work with other competent men. There were certain administrative skills are necessary for effective leadership, but ultimately what it's going to require is godly character. And he picks two men. Hananiah was probably his blood brother. When he says he was my brother, he'd come with him at Susa. When, when uh, Jerusalem had this sad report, he was there with him in the chapter one. He's appointed as the civil leader. He is going to govern and rule there in Jerusalem. But then the second man, Hananiah, is appointed as the military leader. Why? Because he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Together, these two men, they're charged with keeping track of the gates and being responsible for, for defending all the work that they had just done. All these 52 days, all the time that they had spent, they were there. They were going to appoint different residents from the city to be guards. They were going to keep this thing intact. But let's not miss what it looked like to have godly character. He, he says it right here. You can underline it. He was a man of integrity, talking about Hananiah, and he feared God more than most people do. These were the qualifications of godly character. Faithful. This word means reliable or truthful and firm. He was a man that you could depend on. He spoke the truth, and if he promised to do something, he was going to do it. He was a man of his word. If you want your life to count for God, you have to be willing to be a faithful man, a faithful woman, or your word is yours. Hananiah also feared God more than many. Some of us Fear God a little bit. But he feared God more than most of us do. 
He had an understanding for what the holiness of God really is. You see, when you see who God is and you realize who you are by comparison, when we read in Scripture, those who ever come to face to face with an angel or anything in the likeness of God at all, what do we do? We find them lying face down before him. Why? Because we are nothing compared to a holy God. And Hananiah feared God more than many else would. You remember that God is holy, and he knows your every thought and your every deed. And so because of that, you seek to please him in all that you do. If you want your life to count for God, you must grow in the fear of the Lord. Worship matters to God. Character matters to God. And without going too far down this rabbit trail right now, just understand as we're seeing played out in the public sector for us right now, whether character matters or not right? It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you are on. There's an understanding that we need to get our minds around that the ends does not justify the means. Either people have character or they do not. And we see here very clearly and very specifically, what does character look like? Well, scripturally, we can see that it's faithfulness to God and faithfulness to their word and a fear of God. And those that we put in political power, we need to be well aware that character matters to God. And if we ignore that and just pretend that those things don't matter because we got what we want, it's foolishness. Character matters to God. Thirdly, every person, every person matters to God. You can see on the screen right now, it's going to go from verse 4 through 73. And by uh, we, we should all stand, like Brian asked us to stand and read the scripture. We could all stand and try to read these, these names aloud this morning. And you'd be poking at each other and laughing at each other. It's an important thing to realize here. Verse 4, now the city was large and spacious, but there were very few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. <coughs> so my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been first to return. This is what I found written there. So this is a subcategory. These were the people. So he's reading this other document. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each in his own town, and company. And here's some of those names. Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remimiah, Namaniah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpreth, Big, mm, uh, Nahum, and Benah. And that's as far as I'm going with reading these names, Okay. From a historical salvation perspective, the Jewish genealogies were very important to them, but particularly when you get into the New Testament, and these writers in the New Testament are making these connections of why it's so important to be able to document the fact that we are talking about true historical people records that matter to God. And the, the cross-reference here takes us back, and you can look there in Ezra chapter 2. If you go through that, you will see a very, very similar list. There wasn't anyone forgotten. Why? Because every single person matters to God. If we're going to worship the Messiah, we need to know that he comes through the line and the lineage of Judah. 
We need to know and we need to be connected to the fact that these people knew who their Messiah would be. And they still, when it, when it came down to it, when we read the New Testament about the Messiah and all the, all the dots connect, and then they still refused to trust him as their Lord and Savior. Many of you know, <laughs> I do my very best. And we as a leadership team and elders and staff, we do our very best to learn your names. And sometimes we get them wrong. But every person matters. Why? Because every person matters to God. He created you in his image, and he put you here at this time and his, at this place for his purpose. Every person matters to God. Your next fill-in this morning. Commitment matters to God. Commitment matters to God. Verse 6 says this, There are a number of people in the province who came up from captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. That's, that's verse 6. That might be a page turn for you, but go down to verse 73. Verse 73. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with a certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, did what? They settled in their own towns. The people on this list returned from Babylon to Jerusalem and Judah. As we talked about in previous weeks, of 400,000 people who were taken out, only about 40,000 returned. And in that, as they come back, their families have been in Babylon for several generations. It was not easy for them to do what they were doing, but they picked everything up and they went back and moved hundreds of miles across hostile territory and land that had been devastated by war. But they did this because they knew God's promise to their forefather Abraham was to give him this land. And they were to dwell here in this land. And this was going to be their temple. And this was going to be the glory to all the nations. So it's important to realize that God put you at this point here in history right now you're connected to those who have gone before us. We stand on the shoulders of those. There's a heritage of faith is what we talk about often here. Because we have a very specific glimpse of that here at a church that's 200 years old. Generation after generation after generation staying committed to the matters of God. You must carry it faithfully and pass it on to the next generation. Pass that torch forward. And for some of you, you're advanced in years. You're in the fourth quarter. Being careful as I say that so I don't get thrown out of here this morning. But as you look at that, it's just as much the responsibility of those who are 20 years old here this morning to pass the torch on to the next generation as well. Commitment matters to God. Here's your next fill-in. Just because your project is done doesn't mean that your purpose is fulfilled. Just because your project is done, that thing that you've been working on, that ministry area that you have found yourself in for a long time and now maybe it's time to hang up the cleats in some ways, don't think that your purpose is through. Just because your project is done doesn't mean your purpose is fulfilled. In verse four, we see that the, the walls are built <coughs> but as they look around, they realize that the houses are empty. The houses haven't been rebuilt. The homes haven't been fixed. There's still more to be done. 
And we need to be reminded, as long as we are on this planet, as long as you are alive, there is still time on the clock. There's still time on the clock. There is more for you to be doing. Your purpose has not been fulfilled yet. As long as God allows you to have one more breath in your lungs, it is an opportunity for you to speak his name. God is at work in you, and he has more in store for your life. This is what an accurate scorecard looks like, where worship matters, where character matters, where commitment to his will and his way matters, and every person matters to God. And we are called to pursue hard after him. As the band comes forward this morning, I want to share with you this. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this. This is a verse that you read over your kids. I'm telling you very specifically, my daughter and the situation that we're going through, this verse just rings true. Be confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Every person matters to God. God's scorecards are a little bit different than ours. This week we've got kind of a a new thing, a special thing that is happening here. We've got one of our teens who is learning, he's taking lessons here to learn how to play the pipe organ behind me. It's pretty neat. Ooh, yeah, the crowd likes that. Hmm. It's pretty neat. Come in during the week and there's, there's, it's being played during the week. You hear him practicing. I don't think that they expected to have to practice as much as they are, but that's a different story. So I came across this story this week, and maybe for those of you particularly, maybe you're an organ lover, here you go. Maybe this illustration helps you. In a remote village in Switzerland stood a beautiful church. It was so beautiful, in fact, that it was known as the Mountain Valley Cathedral. The church was not only beautiful to look at, it had high pillars, magnificent stained glass windows, but it had the most beautiful pipe organ in all the land. People would come from miles away, from far off lands, to hear the lovely tones of this organ, but there was a problem. The columns were there, the windows still dazzled the sunlight, but there was an eerie silence. The mountain valley was no longer filled with the glorious, fine-tuned music of the pipe organ. Something had gone wrong. Musicians and experts from around the world came and tried to repair it. And every time a new person would try to fix it, the villagers were subjected to the sounds of disharmony, awful penetrating noises polluting the air. One day, an old man appeared at the church door. He spoke with the church leaders, who then reluctantly agreed to let the old man try his hand at repairing the organ. For two days, the old man worked in almost total silence. The church leaders were, in fact, getting a bit nervous. But then on the third day, at high noon, the mountain valley once again was filled with glorious music. Farmers dropped their plows. Merchants closed their stores. Everyone in town stopped what they were doing and headed for the church. Even the bushes and trees of the mountaintop seemed to respond as the glorious music echoed from ridge to ridge. After the old man finished his playing, a brave young man asked him, how could he have fixed the organ? How could he have restored this magnificent instrument even when the world's experts could not? The old man merely said, it was an inside job. He said, it was I who built the organ 50 years ago. I created it, and now I have restored it. See, that's what God is like. 
He does the work. It's he who's created the universe, and it's he who can and will and is right now in the process of restoring it. That is the scorecard that matters, an understanding of our position before a holy God. And as the ushers come forward this morning, maybe it's a time of response for you, a time of understanding that, that you have been here for years and you have not been able to figure out what your role is, what your purpose is here, and what will fulfill you. And what you needed to hear this morning is that every single person in this room matters to God. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have been engaged, you've been working hard. You've been working on the wall and you started high-fiving your buddies because you thought it was over, you thought it was done. And for some reason, there's still something left to do. That's just because that's the way God works. Don't get weary this morning in well-doing. We continue forward because God has called us to do so, and he will empower us to do so. If God is working in your heart this morning, there's that little connection card in the seat in, the seat in front of you. Will you write something down that allows us to dialogue with you later or meet with me in the back? So we'll say, God is working on this in my heart. I need to be a person of character. I need to put worship first as my first priority. Whatever it is as your response to what God is doing in your heart this morning, will you mark something down so that we can follow up with you and help you on those steps to be able to say, I'm going to continue. The job is not done. My project might be done, but my purpose is not fulfilled yet. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you. Lord, we thank you for being like this craftsman in the story, Lord, that's able to repair the instrument that's been damaged and broken for a while. And Lord, there are many in this room that are damaged and have been broken for a while. But we trust that you are a God of restoration. We trust that you are a God who gives us purpose and meaning in this world. And everything outside of you does become meaningless. But Lord, we can walk through those doors today with open eyes and warm hearts, knowing that you have a reason for us to be here. We can't always see that, Lord. Sometimes the valley is dark, the clouds are thick, but we trust that. We trust in you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.